0: Welcome to this BMJ podcast with me, Navjot Lader, Head of Scholarly Comment at the BMJ. We're joined today by two of the authors of a recent analysis article which looks at the experiences of the MAGIC programme, a pilot scheme in Cardiff and Newcastle that explored how to embed shared decision-making into routine primary and secondary NHS care. We have with us Natalie Joseph-Williams, a lecturer in the Division of Population Medicine at Cardiff University, And Richard Thompson, a professor at the Institute of Health and Society at Newcastle University. Now, um, shared decision making is increasingly seen not just as a kind of good or lofty ambition, but as an imperative, really. And while people seem to get and support the principles, doing it in practice seems to be another matter. Um, Natalie, can I start by asking you, what was the goal behind the MAGIC programme?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, I think... Throughout the years, um, the work that we've been doing in shared decision-making is pretty much focused on randomized control trials and developing decision support tools for patients to help them when they are faced with difficult decisions. Um, So the MAGIC program really came about um, from a realization that, you know, whilst these tools and this ambition was good, um, maybe things weren't really changing in day-to-day clinical practice. So the Health Foundation were keen to find out what was going to work and not work in terms of getting this happening on the ground with clinical teams in, in day-to-day practice. So so that's really how it came about.
0: Okay, and um, one of the really helpful things about the article is that it describes um, some of the challenges that, that you saw in implementing and embedding some of these tools to help share decision-making. And I felt that it really... Um, captures a sort of that, that feeling on the ground that one has where you kind of recognize that this is something you want you want to do but doing it in practice seems to be harder to to achieve um, Richard can you talk a bit about what, what were the main th- what were the main challenges you you saw
2: okay so um, in line with some of the other literature that's been published um, we were hearing things um, from clinicians and, and and from the organizations we were working with on the ground And and some of the key things that came through were, um, as you say, people were generally positive about the idea of shared decision-making or person-centered care. Um, But one of the key things that came through was a sort of a sense of, well, we're doing this already. Um, And that's quite a difficult one to address because if people think they're doing it and yet the evidence suggests that they're not, then there's a a gap to bridge. Uh, And I think what we found largely was that Um, as you say, people wanted to do it. People were not too bad at um, sharing uh, the possibility that there might be different treatment options to patients, Um, but where they perhaps struggled um, was in understanding that patients might have a different view, a different perspective, different values, different preferences to the clinician um, in terms of what treatment might be right for them that might meet their needs their aspirations and, and fit in with their day-to-day life. Um, and, I, and I think that was one of the um, le- big learning points from, from this. Um, there was a, an element of we don't have the right tools or skills to do this. Um, on the tools side, yes, as Natalie's already said, there are services and making tools, posting decision aids. But um, they uh, are not available for every decision, nor will they ever be. Um, And even if you've got them, um, you need clinicians who are skilled in having a a different sort of conversation with patients um, that picks up some of the things we've just been talking about, about um, values, preferences and and what matters to patients. Um, I think another key thing that we found was a a barrier was um, clinicians saying, oh, but my patients don't want this. Um, They say to me, um, well, you tell me what to do, doctor, you're the expert. Um, and and you, in, in a way that then became a way for them to almost shut down the conversation and become the all-knowing expert and and um, Say to patients what they thought should happen Whereas another way of looking at it is actually it's not a bad question for a patient to ask of a clinician What do you think from your clinical perspective? But then we need to bring the expertise of the patient in IE What's important to you into into getting to the right decision? Um, so there were a couple of things um, there were certainly other challenges but they were um, really quite important uh, issues that came out
0: mm. and um, yeah that you described those all in the article so, so people who want to read in more depth about those can, can do that in the article itself and one of the other ones you mentioned is about the sort of competing demands and priorities um, so how, how do you think that, that sort of tension can be addressed between making this a a sort of core component and and a priority when there is so much that is competing for healthcare professionals' attention?
2: Um, I think part of what we learned here is this isn't something that is additional to what people are doing. It's something that ought to become the core of what they do and that um, they should begin to recognise that when they appreciate and understand the value of uh, in, involving patients in decisions um, in that it's good for them, it's better for their clinical expertise, it's good for patients and it's good for the healthcare system as a whole. It leads to the, the best use of what are limited resources. Um, so one of those sorts of competing demands, what it comes down to at the end of the day is time. You know, Do we have the time to do this? Um, and there are a lot of concerns that you know, having these sorts of conversations with patients will take longer. Um, um, and actually the evidence is pretty mixed on that. Um, it may take a bit longer, um, but it may mean that you don't have as many follow-up com- consultations because you've um, come to the right sort of decision in the right sort of way with the patient in the first place. Um, and certainly, the evidence in, in patients using decision aids suggests that it doesn't really take any longer if patients are uh, themselves well informed. So, there's probably something also there about a message about um, patients um, themselves being better prepared for and supported in those sorts of different conversations.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I read recently um, Harlan Krumholtz on Twitter saying that. You know that perhaps this does need a sort of reconceptualizing as not just a thing that it would be nice to do, but actually the, the sort of core of what we do, and maybe one thing is to is to even stop calling it shared decision making. It's actually the patient's decision and we're just doing our best to make sure it's informed. And maybe that's a way of thinking about it that, you know, doesn't seem so removed from what we're what we're trying to do and already trying to do. Um so based on what you found, um and And those challenges that you describe, Natalie, what were the things that you sort of um saw as being the priorities to kind of make make this happen in practice? what What do we need to address, and how can we support people best?
1: Um I think the key learning that came out of the program, and um, I think the you know the quote is in the paper that skills trump tools and attitudes trump skills. So the first thing we need to focus on, and you've just picked up on that, it's changing attitudes about this concept. It's not an additional extra thing that we should be doing with patients if we have time to do it. It's something that should be a core part of every consultation to make sure the patient's having the best care for them. So working you know, with organizations to frame this as a core value, something that they want to achieve, that's very important. Also working with patients to change attitudes too. It's not just about changing attitudes of clinicians. Um, If we don't focus on patients and trying to help them to understand that it should be a normal part of their consultation that they are involved, and we're not going to get very far with this at all. You know, the tools are very helpful, um, but if you're offering those tools to patients who don't feel that they can become engaged um, because they're not allowed to or they're going to be um, a difficult patient if they try to be, um, they're not going to work. Um, as I said, skills are very important, um, you know, and, and providing those training opportunities to healthcare professionals. And I think this is why we feel that Um, undergraduate education of um, clinicians, you know, that could be doctors, nurses, anyone from any other allied health um, profession, is going to be absolutely key. Because if we can embed those values at that stage, when people are learning how to interact with patients, then it just becomes seen as part of the norm of what you do with that patient.
0: And do you think that is the key to kind of um, changing and developing attitudes is is that very early sort of trying to shape the conversation very early? I think
1: so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's very difficult to change attitudes, you know, across all change programmes. That's one of the biggest challenges we face. So if we can work to just try to mould those attitudes in some way, um, that's going to be a lot easier than trying to change them. Um, and just as I think it's really important to work with future doctors, nurses and any healthcare professional Um, I also think that patients of the future are also going to be key if we want this to become routine. So when I say patients of the future, I'm talking about children and young people. Um, So I think it's very important that they start to learn the importance of being involved in their own health care the importance of self-management at a very early age. So again, it becomes the norm. It's a normal experience to go in and ask your doctor questions, and if you're told that you have a certain condition, you can have an open conversation about the options that are available. So I'd really like to see it become, um, you know, a, an important part of you know children and young people's education. Um, and I think it would be particularly important for those children and adolescents who are transitioning to adult care. Um, when they might not be supported by the parents in that consultation anymore.
0: And is that something that um, that you observed during during the pilot? Did you notice any kind of generational differences in attitude? I mean, among healthcare professionals and and among patients in general.
2: I think the answer to that would be yes. Um, that um, and I do some work with medical students as well, so I'm involved in medical education too. And, and I think we are seeing uh generational differences happening um so I, I but i think we've in any change of this size um, moving something to becoming the norm rather than being seen as something extra which inevitably takes time and inevitably you have to approach it from a from a range of different angles you have to get everything sort of aligned um so yes it's about education and training and that needs to start with undergraduate training, as uh, and indeed in school education, as as, uh, uh, as Natalie has already said, but it also needs to be a, a firm and fixed and formal part of postgraduate education, so that um, as we train um, the junior doctors to become consultants, um, the way that they're assessed and evaluated um, uh, in order to get their accreditation sees this as important, and. It, it, it still could do more in that respect. So, uh, but then we've got to have all of the other things to to align, like um, uh, the systems within which we work, um, the um, senior um, board members and executives of, of hospitals recognising this is important, and indeed patients and patient representative groups pushing for this too.
0: It, it's really interesting to think about how how you can effectively do, make make those kind of attitudinal changes and and encourage them and support them, Um, particularly in the NHS, which at time, you know, for staff are already working under so much pressure and it's quite a beleaguered system. So how how can we do this in a kind of compassionate way that isn't a sort of stick to beat people with, but, you know, at the same time making clear how important it is? I think that's quite a difficult uh, balance
2: i think there are again there are several elements to that um some of it is about making um uh, skills uh training available we developed uh, training across the program and an important component of that was actually um bringing people's attitudes to the surface and and um getting them to question them uh and and share them um and and so that that's an important part um Attitudes are so critical that um, if you don't address those in the first instance, then just providing skills, training is going to um, be challenging. Um, So there are ways to to, to get people to think about the way they think. Um, To give you an example, we would ask them to um, rate a statement. Um, You know, the role of the doctor is to um, tell the patient what, is best for them might be a statement of of, of that type and ask them to almost rate themselves on a a, from one to ten as to where they stood in totally agree or totally disagree with that and in our training sessions we'd get them almost to line up on on, on the floor in that almost sort of um, uh, human like at scale Um, and then we'd ask them to discuss well why did they stand there? Rather than here on that um, on that spectrum, and to talk among themselves about it, so there are ways of, of drawing out and challenging um, the way people think, and also getting them to to reflect and to see that you know other clinicians have different approaches and, and and so forth.
0: Yeah, that reflection, I imagine, would be would be key. You know, having some insight into your own into your own attitudes before you're able to to develop them. Um, are there are there any other sort of key? Uh, either strategies or elements of this change that you think are, are important?
1: So I think, you know, the tools that we have are fantastic and they can help us support um, getting this embedded in day-to-day practice. The skills training, as we've both said, is very important as well and attitudinal change. Um, so there is some transferable learning from the things that we have developed and these tools should certainly be seen as good examples um, for adaptation for local use. So ultimately, it's it will all come down to local circumstances and what's going to work in that particular setting. I think what we'd like to emphasize is shared decision-making is not a standardized process, and we don't expect that it ever will be. Um, what actually happens in the consultation is going to depend on many different factors, including the condition you're dealing with, the patient, the family, or the healthcare team. And certainly Team A are not going to do it the same way as Team B, and they may not even do it you know, the same day on different same way on different days, sorry. Um, it doesn't mean they're doing it any less well, it just means that they're doing what works for their local setting. So models, series and tools all have their place. Um, but I think there needs to be much more focus on local improvement programmes and learning on the ground in the clinical teams that are going to use it. So We need to understand what's going to work, when it's working and why. Um, and I think if we don't use this approach, we're in danger of using interventions um, that aren't fit for local context and, and might not be um, very effective in the long run.
0: One of the things I'm just looking at your um, the figure, the figure that's great, the the sort of uh, factors that influence um, implementing shared decision making, and you talk about um, incentivisation and aligning shared decision making with um, perhaps targets for QOF, uh, the Quality and Outcomes Framework, or for referrals. What do you, what do you think about that as a potential strategy?
1: Um, I mean, in
0: terms of you know, the, we are seeing policies.
1: Um, Certainly coming out of Wales um, and and across the UK, but things which are aligning now with patient-centred healthcare. So, you know, we have the Prudent Healthcare Agenda in Wales, which talks about the co-production of health and services, doing what is needed for patients, no more and no less, and reducing them more into variation. You know, the NHS Constitution talks about this, there's various white papers. Um, And we're starting to realise that, you know, the targets that we're trying to achieve in healthcare need to be reflected of the challenges, um, you know, which are faced um, out there. So it, and we, we still have a long way to go, but at least, you know, we are starting to talk about that and realize that um, we need to focus more on patient-centered um, outcomes. Uh, one of the challenges we have faced, just for example, we've talked about referrals and um, the sort of um, conflict or the tension between shared decision-making. So, you know, we sometimes have um, cancer treatment time targets, that, you know, that clinicians are expected to make. But if you know we're encouraging patients to take time to think about that decision, in discussion with the healthcare professionals, go away, um, have a think about how it's going to impact on their life. If we have these time targets to meet, then it's not really allowing that process to happen. So I think it is going to be key that we start to look at those targets and think about how it doesn't fit in really with what we're trying to achieve with this. I'm sure Richard could add to that.
2: Yes, I mean, I think one of the big challenges here is making sure that um, other policies don't seem to contradict um, those um, national attempts to improve patient involvement and in shared decision making. So we may be, as Natalie's already said, um, asking people to make uh, decisions quickly, um, which may or may not allow time to make informed and well judged decisions and to have those sorts of conversations. We're also increasingly, I think, seeing examples um, in uh, areas of uh, so-called referral management where um, um, GPs are, in effect, having to refer their patients for um, hospital care and consideration of of hospital interventions um, through a third party who will decide whether the patient has met a, a clinical threshold for treatment. Um, but that seems to um, be counter to recognizing that different patients have different perspectives and values uh, and may um, uh, wish to pursue different management strategies for their for their treatment or for their problem. So I think that's actually a very good um, current example of where shared decision making, involving the patient, making the decision that's right for them. And um, some of the systems we have in place to reduce referrals uh, may be sending to the mix. Mm.
0: Yeah. And it occurs to me, as um, you mentioned co-production, Natalie, that actually one of the one thing that may help enable this is um, the you know co-production of health services of, of at every level with with patients may may address some of this begin to address some of this and that's something that we at the BMJ have been advocating as well.
1: Um, I think co production is very important. Um, We need to make sure that the interventions that we're developing to try to support people to become more engaged and involved in their healthcare management and decisions, we need to make sure they're designed for that community and they're fit for purpose with that local community because every area is very different. Um, So we need to make sure that those people that you're trying to help are involved in that um, development process to make sure that they are most effective.
0: Great. Well, that seems like a good point for us to take away and think about. Um, Natalie and Richard, thanks so much for joining us today. And that paper, Implementing Shared Decision Making in the NHS, Lessons from the Magic Programme, is now available on bmj.com.